Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L., and this, I'm not here. <laughs> this is Amber. He is here, kind of. Well, of course, yeah, well, sort of. At the beginning of the show, which is actually the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> if that's not confusing. Things got a little hairy this week, and yeah. Um, Scott, course, I had to work tonight. I, I had to work tonight. I'm t- actually technically working tonight, but don't tell my boss. Oh. But I, I was able to get back down here and at least uh, hang out with you for a few minutes. Um, but... Yeah, not much for me to say tonight. It's no. all it's all about no, Amber um, here. We had on the show tonight Linda Radish, uh, who has put out numerous books on really cool subjects. Uh, again, we were really thrilled when Llewellyn sent us a nice box recently of cool books to check out. Yeah. Uh, this was one of them. Uh, well, actually, they sent me two. Yeah. I have The Old Magic of Christmas by yeah. Linda Radish, Yuletide Traditions, of yeah. for the darkest days of the year. And the one we're talking about today, The Secret History of Christmas Baking, Recipes and Stories from Tomb Offerings to Gingerbread Boys. And we get, speaking of little boys. Uh, all right, yep, hi, Rollins. We got one yeah. just on the... Our little cat. On one of the um, desks. So everyone, this, this is the time of year when everyone's, you know, whether you're a believer in Christmas or you're religious or whatever you are, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mentioned uh, in the show talking uh, with Linda that somehow we're all affected by Christmas. Uh, whether it's yeah, whether you whether you really whether baking. you believe it or well, I mean whether yeah, you, you don't really have a choice have a spirit of it or not. And yeah. and I'm probably speaking from like an American perspective because in uh, the U.S. you do not have a choice after no, the right day after Thanksgiving. Well, before that, it's it's all quietly being set up in stores already. Uh, Hobby quietly. Oh yeah, there's like there's a little quietness because there's they don't play the music yet. It uh, they're just set, setting up a little Christmas tree yeah. uh, display or something. Now places like Hobby Lobby, you go in there and it's just Depression Central because in July there's already Christmas stuff out. Be- and mostly I understand because of crafters, so they have to well, start yeah, doing their jump. stuff I to sell. I get it. it, but they put the Christmas trees out there already in July. They're setting up Christmas trees and yeah. ornaments. It's not just crafting supplies. So this year, anyway, it just always feels like it gets earlier and earlier and earlier. But as soon, anywhere in the United States, as soon as you step into a store, whether it's a grocery store, whatever it is, the day after Thanksgiving, you will hear uh, Christmas music. Yeah. And everyone has their most hated song. Like, what's your hate most hated Christmas time song? Oh, I'm I'm in the majority of the Mariah Carey song. I I, I can't I, stand I, that song. I, it just gives it just gives me the chill, ding, not ding, not the good ding. chills. Like, what do you call it? The I just cringe when I hear it. It's so I bad. also can't stand Feliz Navidad. That got that's been annoying for a long time too. Um, yeah, those and the, it's the just scary stuff. Just doesn't it doesn't pop, man. It's terrible. Every there, I do I do like some of the old time stuff. I still can I still can listen to Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer over well, and over. Well, that's now and, and you know what <laughs> on that subject, this actually happened when I was when I was younger when I was in my adolescent years. Because that song got really popular in the '80s, like when I think when it came out in the '80s, I think I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I sang it in elementary school, and it got super, super, super popular. And we heard a radio station that did this here, in, you know, I forget what here in Detroit, what station it was exactly, but they played that song on repeat for 24 <laughs> oh, hours. Why? I don't know. Why? I don't know. Well, okay, I can't say why because if you go on. What is it like TBS or one of those stations? They'll play a Christmas Story. Yeah, they'll play a Christmas yeah, for Story 20, 24. A marathon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then now there's like Harry Potter marathons too. That's become like a Christmas time, probably because they always release the movies at Christmas. I don't know why I've always said this, but The Godfather is always a movie that I like to watch during Christmas. Why is there? Does Christmas it's not a happen? Christmas movie. We're not going to get into that debate. Does Christmas happen in the movie? It, Christmas does happen in the movie. Okay, some people say Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I know. That's been a just ridiculous, stupid debate. I don't understand And honestly, it. I've only seen like Die Hard once, so I, it yeah. was probably in 1991, so I have no idea. But I have I, no I reference. always end up watching The Godfather around the holidays because it, it's a longer movie, and it's just something I do every Every Christmas, it just feels right, you know, to watch that classic movie, one of my all-time favorites. So yeah, you can't get away from Christmas. That's the bottom line, especially here in the U.S. You're not you're not escaping it uh, for better or for worse. Thankfully, I think for us, it's for the better. We have a good time during the holidays here, and we're do very you, busy usually. Do you have a favorite Christmas time baked good? Uh you know, well, she's gone now. But my grandma Lambert, you remember my grandma Lambert used to make those marmalade things? She'd bring over all the baked goods for it was Christmas. It's like the little pastry with the little dot of jam in it. Yeah. Yeah, I forget what those Man. are called. Well, there was marmalade she put in there. 
And those things, you know, as soon There's as There's a name, though. I feel like they're Polish. Well, in typical grandma fashion, as soon as she smelled, caught wind that I really like those, she come in with like four pounds of them. <laughs> you know, that's why I gained weight over the holidays. Um, and my mom will make them every once in a while because she knows I like them. She, she knows that I like that recipe. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, I think that would be up there with my top stuff. Mm. I'm not really much into sweets anymore. However, we had we had that brownie at the uh, at your work Christmas party. You seem to really like that brownie, man. That brownie, I not only had that brownie. <laughs> I did not have one of those. Well, it, it, you know, it's it's one of them brownies. You know, the problem I have with American sweets is I have sensitive teeth, right? And they're too sweet. And when it gets too sweet, man, my teeth just light up, right? Yeah. Uh, you can make sweets like they do in Europe. Yeah. With not that much sugar in them. Or, and they still uh, taste good. Like Asian, Asian, Asian yeah. treats, too, don't have as much sugar. Like Kinder Chocolata, which is like, you know, that's a European chocolate. I mean, they sell it over here, too. But it's you can tell it's a totally different, you know, like chocolate because it don't have, it don't feel like your teeth are going to fall right out as soon as you bite into it, right? It actually tastes nice. It's pleasant. So, all right, enough ranting. Well, I like, I got to tell my favorites. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, what's your favorite? <laughs> Thank you, Scott. I will tell you. I my grandma. I have two traditions in the family. One is patitza, which is a oh, Slovenian recipe, yeah. which is a walnut kind of crushed walnut bread. That's uh, delicious. It's so good. And my grandma was like, she just was so good at making it. It's unfortunately now she's got a little bit of dementia, so it's we're probably not going to get it this year at all. But there's some other family members trying to make it, and she also made uh, apple strudel. In this method that yeah. w- didn't involve um, the flaky pie dough d- type. It was um, soft. It was just like a soft dough, and she she would roll it out yeah, so really thin. And then I, I helped her make it a couple times, so I'm probably going to have to take her recipe and try and practice. You need an entire massive table to roll out the dough as thin and large as she does. Uh, but it's And then she'd do everything, just kind of eyeball it. The amount of sugar, the amount of cinnamon, everything. just It was just eyeball. There wasn't, like, exact measurements. Yeah. Um, you just di- you cut up butter and just throw it in there. Just, like, pounds of butter. Just throw it in there, which is awesome. Anything oh, yeah. that has pounds of butter, yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> but anyway, we had a lot of fun. Uh, at least I had a lot of fun because Scott couldn't be here to chat with Linda. This but is it- episode number 200. Oh, it is I mean, 200. For this run we've been doing. I know we... It is 200. And we owe oh, everyone a... Yeah. So, okay, Scott, here's what we're going we to do. We haven't really... No. We, I looked at the, what we did this I know it was bad, much at all, but let's God. Scott, let's let's promise, let's give the people this because I keep saying we're going to do a little update, an update. So yeah. before the end of the people year, people give a shit what we do around. Oh here. my God, they do. <laughs> so um, about our lives. Anyway, we're going to give before the end of the year. We'll do a little end of the year recap right, yeah. and we'll, update. We'll get a night here. Um, I mean, I I'm going to have plenty of time. Thankfully, I'm going to get some vacation. Yeah, here. you're going to be off of work. So, I'm gonna be doing a, the Almighty Staycation. I will be good. Uh, so we'll but, have some time, and we'll yeah, we'll crank out a yeah. half an hour, hour of uh, just. We'll put a drink updates. in your hand, and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get a couple beers going, <laughs> and we'll be here all night. Okay, <laughs> Linda Radish uh, is a writer, paper crafter, soap maker. She is the author of the Old Magic of Christmas, as well as numerous articles on folklore, herb lore, and ancient religions. She lives in New Providence, New Jersey. You can find her books on Amazon or anywhere else that bookstores are, or bookstores, anywhere books are sold. Follow, find her on Instagram, social media, and enjoy our Christmas time special with Linda Radish. that time of year again it's the shortest days of the year the longest nights send everyone inside to stay cozy but there's a darkness about this time of the year that we have been exploring for years on this show if you go back in uh, the past three four years even five we always take this month to talk about all the strange and creepy things that pop up during the winter months particularly around christmas time that people are very unaware of 
Uh, on today's show, we have researcher and author Linda Radish, who is going to help us explore the surprising and sometimes dark origins of our beloved holiday recipes. Any chance I get to talk about weird stuff plus food is a win for me. So welcome to the show, Linda. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're thrilled. When uh, Kat, the pub, uh, your publicist at Llewellyn, sent me a box of books recently and I pulled this book out, I was like, yes, we get to talk about food. I so hope we can get her on the show. So I was thrilled that you agreed to come on. Uh, now, you've written extensively on the dark side of the Yule slash Christmas season, uh, especially with your previous book, The Old Magic of Christmas, Yuletide Traditions for the Darkest Days of the Year. But your newest work, The Secret History of Christmas baking explores the stories behind the traditional foods many of us prepare at this time. You actually joke in the introduction of the book that it could have been titled The Violent History of Christmas Baking. Uh, so I know we're going to have plenty to talk about because I don't think this is a subject. I feel like your book is really fresh and unique when it comes to looking at our Christmas traditions through the perspective of food. So there is, I know we're not, we're, we, we can probably talk for days on this, but we got to start at the beginning. We got to start at the very beginning. How did you begin down this path of research with this particular book? I didn't really mean to. Um, it's not, well, it's only, this book is only unique in that it puts that, all that history into a baking book. Okay. Because um, there is a lot out there. Um, there's a book, The Taste of Conquest, that I used a lot. Um there's I'm trying to remember there's been um there was a book which dealt a lot with uh um the the bonda massacre over the nutmeg groves so there are histories even you know easy to read uh non-fiction creative non-fiction and histories but then when you approach it from the baking side from actually using the spices it's all you know sweet and Merry Christmas. Right. And, and so this I'm I'm bringing them together. I'm trying to, it's hard to remember sometimes like what did I set out to do originally? <laughs> First I thought about it was during the lockdown that I got the idea because I thought um it would be fun to write a book about Christmas markets like the cuz um Frankfurt uh, Nuremberg, yeah. Lübeck, the city where my mom grew up, they all have Christmas markets. And they're, each one is a little bit different. Each one has a different history. I think Frankfurt is one of the oldest, um, going way back to the Middle Ages. And I could write a book about Christmas markets, and then there would be crafts and recipes to go with it. And it would be okay that I can't afford to go to all the Christmas markets or any of the Christmas markets because nobody can go anywhere. It's a lockdown because usually when, you know, if you write books about faraway places, you're supposed to go to the faraway sure. places. Sure. Um, and I've been to, I've been to Germany a bunch of times because we used to go every summer, but we, I've never been there. The latest in the year I was ever there was for Halloween when I went for my cousin's wedding. Uh, so I've never been to any actual German Christmas markets. I've okay. been to the, there's one in New Jersey every year close to me. I didn't make it this year because I had to work. Um, and I could like contrast it with that one. It's really depressing. <laughs> the New Jersey one. It's just, um, it's, you know, it's put on by a local German club. And uh, they do have uh, Glühwein. You can go to a stall and get Glühwein. You can get it in a, um, a Christkindlmarkt or Christmas market mug and i have a this is now the season where the the christkindlmarkt mugs come down from the cabinet and that's what we drink out of all this uh, season but it's um there's like piped uh american christmas music oh. um and it's well it is cold it's cold but i think like they have some like, heaters or maybe fires <laughs> or something in in the in the ones in europe and so so the people who are selling yeah. are cold and then there's like the stereotype of like you know the the abrupt older german lady <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like, oh, well, what, what do you want and, and like i'll go up and i'll like 
now I'm better now, but like I would go up and try to speak German and then they answer me in heavily accented English. Um, so we basically went, it was just kind of like a ninja run, you know, get the things that we need to have, the, the imported um, Schon, Marzipan, Domino Steine, Lebkuchen, you know, grab that stuff and some some roasted almonds and and go home and then enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so I've always wanted to go to a real well, this is a real Christmas market. I've always wanted to go to a Christmas market in, in Germany. Because um, my mom would tell, she told me, you know, about the ones she went to in, to in Lübeck. And like, she was born in 1937. So a lot of, you know, she didn't go to a whole lot because they didn't have a whole lot because it was, you know, wartime when she was growing up. Um, but mostly she remembered a certain cookie, uh, a Linza Törtchen, and there is a recipe for that in the book which she doesn't 100 percent um accept as what she, exactly what she ate there but i did my best um so the okay all right when i'm christmas markets and it'll have recipes um but then somehow i got that seemed a little ambitious sure. it was like too many cities too many yeah so then i thought well, what if i just wrote about gingerbread the history of gingerbread um, but with Llewellyn, you know, you have to have, so you can get on, you know, shows like Ghostly Talk, you have to have some kind of paranormal sure. slant to it. Um, so I thought, okay, am I going to have enough of that? And, but then as I delved into gingerbread, it like, you know, just like, you know, how like the human family tree branches out the gingerbread branches out. It's like, mm, well, it's descended from, is it from this? And then it, it crosses lines with Stollen, which is the German Christmas bread, or is it cake? It crosses lines with challah, the Jewish challah at one point, which I didn't see that coming. Um, and then if you're going to talk about Elisenlebkuchen, which is like the highest form of Lebkuchen, or as it's translated, gingerbread, then you have to talk about marzipan. So you have to talk about almonds. And then, so then, of course, I knew I had to write about spices, and I knew something about spices because I'm always into food and where do where do things you know the things that we eat come from. Uh, so when I started researching the spices, is like hmm, there's some dark stuff going on about sure. how it got yeah. how it got yeah. to Europe, and then with sugar, sugar is like the worst thing that ever happened. Refined sugar is just it's the worst thing that ever happened to everybody. Um, so that's how it got dark. Yeah. That's and and like I might have gotten off easier just doing the Christmas markets after all. <laughs> uh, but I'm glad I I'm glad I wrote this because I learned a lot and I think other people are gonna learn a lot. And at one point I thought people are gonna read this book and like never want to bake Christmas cookies again. Right. <laughs> Well, when you when you look yeah. at, when you start looking at the history of, of of what people did to fight for these spices and to fight for these simple ingredients that we a lot of us take for granted now, uh, particularly like you said, sugar, like how bad sugar was, uh, refined sugar. Um, can you go? Do you remember right off the top of your head a little bit of that dark history that just circumvents sugar? Yeah, um, and there is more and more being being written about it. Um, so like we we all know about the transatlantic slave trade but to realize how much sugar was a part of it um because the the arabs in the early middle ages um they took over they discovered sugar from india who was where it was um more of a cottage industry you make like rock sugar and you could still get a kind of indian rock sugar in in indian grocery stores and then the arabs they brought it up a little, a little larger cottage industry. They couldn't, it wasn't a huge industry because they were growing in arid climates and um, sugar originally comes from New Guinea. That's where it was first domesticated. And they used it for all kinds of stuff. They used uh, the, certain kinds of sugar cane for, um, you know, to build houses, a certain kind where they'd feed to the pigs and certain kind of, you know, you chew on it and suck it because it had a sweet juice in it. Um, so the Arabs tried to, they didn't, very pretty well growing it in like Jordan there was a major sugar works there um and in North Africa on islands in the Mediterranean 
And but they kind of realized early on, oh, we really need slave labor <laughs> to make this a go. So it was really in the Arab empires that they started using, and especially West African slave labor. Slave labor could be anybody, you know. Basically, if you uh, prisoners of war um, were, you know, sent to make sugar to to grow it and to process it, and then from them, the I think the Venetians got in the game for a while. Spanish got in the game and then when the Caribbean was colonized and there were like by Europeans they were like hey we could grow sugarcane here and sugarcane loved that environment the moist and the warm and it's like we can grow lots and lots of sugarcane we need lots and lots of people to plant it to harvest it to process it and so there were was already a enslaved West African workforce who knew how to do this stuff because it's not easy. It's very time time sensitive. You can't let it rot in the fields. It's got to go into processing immediately. There's lots of steps to draw out the molasses from the refined sugar. And um, so the more sugar they were growing, the more slaves they needed. And, you know, they were making big time money and it just went on. And then the, the you know, slave... I, there's the triangle trade and I always forget which angle is which it's all bad um, using sugar to make rum. And then you trade the rum um, by more slaves and it just goes on and on cycle and still the effects of depending on which side of the sugar trade, your ancestors were on, we're still paying for that today. Yeah. And you think about just in general too the health effects of sugar <laughs> And that's yeah, like when I I say in the book when I thought, oh, let me let me I want to know more about sugar, and all I can find is like how and why not to eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, and and, and we all love sugar. I mean, I just I, like I yeah. I'm someone I love sweet stuff, but I am definitely if I'm gonna sit and snack, give me a bag of chips any day. Um, I'm I'm like that person, the savory person, but still like every day I just love to have at least one thing sweet, no matter just something small, a little piece of chocolate, like just just something. Um, I'd but, like to know, like, if there's a difference, if there's a gender difference in approach to sugar, because I remember, um, I, you know, I have two kids and when I would take them to birthday parties, those, you know, those franchise birthday parties at, you know, the fun jungle. Yeah. And and I remember I took my my daughter to a birthday party when she was in kindergarten and it was a roller skating party. So everybody's roller skating and then they heard everybody into a little concrete cell <laughs> to have the cake yeah. and they bring out this frosted cake. Everybody sings. And then the boys are like, do we have to have cake or we go skate? And the mom's like, oh, you fine, go skate. And so the the boys are skating and the girls are all sitting there eating cake. And yeah. I'm like, this is something biological it could, going on. It could be. That would be interesting to look up. Like if, yeah, females are naturally more inclined to, to maybe uh, be be attracted to sugar or if it's just a, if that's just a byproduct of hyper little boys that just are like, I got to skate. You know, I don't I know. Skate. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if it's, if it's biological, if it's, if it's cultural, I don't know. And my, my son, who's actually trans, He's always like, oh, he can, you know, take the sugar or not take the sugar. Yeah. He's more of the, the he's the chip guy. Yeah. And, so, and yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, and Scott too on the show, he, he typically will go straight for a bag of tortilla chips over something sugary. In fact, half the time I'm trying to offer him something sugary, he's like, I don't want that. I don't want anything sweet. So I don't know, but I'm sure there has been studies done on that, like especially with how sugar is has impacted um, our lives as human beings uh, in a fairly negative mm -hmm. way. I'm sure someone has looked at that kind of thing and on how maybe uh, our brains process it differently through the spectrum of gender. But yeah, um, so. this is the time of year, though. Everything, everyone gets loaded with sweet treats. I know at work already we have our bake sale going on and like I'm bringing home cookies and chocolate covered walnuts and turtles and everything under the sun. Um, and I want to talk about um, the spices because I think that is one of the quintessential things in our Christmas time baking, even even at before Christmas time baking, what starts pumpkin spice, pumpkin spice. And I love how you mention in the <laughs> book that you're like, yeah, yeah, like, 
pumpkin. I think it, I'm pretty sure it was you had mentioned something about people. Oh, no, never mind. That was something else I read. But like it's those it has nothing to do with pumpkins. No. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with pumpkins. Exactly. Uh, but it's it's what makes that pumpkin pie flavor. It makes that it's that that taste of fall. And I love pumpkin pie, but like I can I can kind of live. I can go without a pumpkin spice latte. I'm not one of those people that like goes nuts over those. Uh, but pumpkin pie, there's something about that, like, perfect blend of spices. If it's just a little too much under something, a little too much over, like, I notice it. And same with mm. Christmas time. Like, you think gingerbread. Like, how you mentioned, like, okay, yeah, like, I thought about writing a book just on gingerbread. Um, all of the little, all spice, coriander, all the different things that go into our Christmas uh, time cooking. Um, and so you mentioned that the Christmas kitchen is, quote, very much Arabic. Can you explain how the Middle East is sort of a player in the Christmas game? Yeah, it's a it's a a big player. Um, like marzipan, which uh, really in most people pronounce it marzipan in English. Uh, there is an English word for it, which is marchpane, hmm. but that fell out of favor, I think, because Germany became. Um, you know, one of the biggest producers of marzipan, the most famous for marzipan. Even though Spain also has its own marzipan story uh so marzipan is almonds sugar and rose water and it in a paste a mold moldable paste so you can make all kinds of fun shapes with it um fruits uh even in lubeck they make uh you know pictures of the historic houses little plates of marzipan with with that on it um but it was invented in 10th century baghdad that was really like the you know the center of oak cuisine at that time and it was um it came into europe in in the middle east it was i think it was used yes somewhat medicinally but also they they started uh you know making castles and things out of it and centerpieces for the table when it got to europe it was regarded as a medicinal food pretty much anything with sugar in it was considered medicinal when it first got into Europe. Why? You why? Be, why was that? Because just like um, think of like think of foods that are touted as health foods now, like acai berries, goji berries, um, exotic things. Things that are exotic for us. Yeah. And in Europe, Northern Europe, especially, sugar was exotic. Okay. So, and, you know, sugar, rose water, orange peel, things that came from far away um, and tasted good. So, oh, that must be good for us because it's, you know, it's exotic. It's something we haven't had before. Maybe this will cure our intestinal parasites okay. once and for all. Yeah. And gin, so, so ginger came from the East. Um, and like I said, sugar from India. So the Arabs had access to those foods a lot earlier than we did. Alexandria in Egypt, that was most of our spices came through there to begin. It came to Europe through um, Alexandria. The Venetians early on had a trading trading post there. Um, so the Arabs had, you know, access to these things. A lot of them came from like nutmeg, came from Indonesia and, and Arabs and Arab and Chinese traders had been um, you know, collecting these things and trading them for centuries already before Europe had even heard of them. Uh, pepper came in a little earlier. Uh, the Ro ancient Romans had pepper and they would have gotten it through, probably through Alexandria. Uh, but usually by the time it came to Europe, nobody knew where it came from eventually. It, it, um, you know, originally they some even thought the, the medievals thought it, they came from paradise and there's even one um african spice called melagetta which was also known as grains of paradise and was used um, like we use black pepper today that i find that so fascinating like just like i said i take you take everyone has a spice cabinet and you just take everything in there for granted and like how hard it was at one point in history to get your hands on just one particular spice, how expensive it might have been. I, I know in your book, too, you mentioned that it was a bit of a, uh, a myth that the medieval people like over seasoned their food to cover up it being uh, stale or rotten. 
Um, yeah, they weren't stupid. They yeah. weren't. They they weren't. They they could. They knew how to smoke and salt meat, and you you slaughter the animals in the fall, so that you don't have to feed extra animals over the winter. And then you know it's cold, so it'll keep longer, and you salt it and you smoke it. They were not stupid. Yeah. Because that was always in my head. So when I read that right away, I'm like, that really stood out. I was like, huh, yeah, I've, I've always been taught that. Like, that's why they Yeah, were... I was taught that yeah. in school, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They oversalted yeah. everything because it was all rotten and gross. Um, yeah, not... So you mentioned, speaking of gross, though, I want to get into uh, the part about Egypt. And not necessarily that that's gross, but I want to go <laughs> right into the fact that uh, sometimes there was, a well, first off, there was sometimes ground mummy used for certain yeah. things and i love i this 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 part intrigued me so much because you mentioned the ground mummy and you mentioned also mummy wheat so i so want to talk about both of these things um plus i you you mentioned another possible working title for your book was mummies tarts and harpies the secret history yeah. of christmas baking because there was so much also about ancient egypt that weaves throughout your book and the themes so okay we got to start with let's talk about mummy spice what was mummy spice okay so mummies were um you know they were wrapped in the bandages very very artfully don't believe what you see on you know horror movies i hate it when i see a mummy mummy running around and like you know his bandages are all coming undone and they're flapping and they're all ragged yeah. no if you go to the museum and they were like exquisitely yeah. wrapped with bands crossing over so underneath that they would have the body would have been treated with um different kinds of resin um sometimes pistachio resin um pistachio yeah different uh, waxes oils and so really that that was what that coating on the wrappings was what people wanted and it yeah, maybe there was something good about it but like how do you get that you break into a tomb it's a um you know the mummy's been sitting there for a long time everything's become fused so you're gonna if you try to pry off what i call the um nice candy coating of the mummy you're gonna get actual you know flesh and dried flesh and bone stuck up in there too so they would just grind the whole thing up into oh. a powder and you could buy it at the apothecary and um, it was also, there was a color used well into the 1800s, I think, called mummy brown, which was used as a paint. Wow. Did, mm -hmm. when you were doing that research, did you ever get any kind of figure on how many mummy bodies were probably looted from tombs to create this for people? Oh, I don't know. I mean, probably thousands. It had to have been. Yeah, thousands because that would have been like an industry. Yep. You know, if a family that has access to the tombs, you got to make, you got to make ends meet. And if you know the crazy people overseas are interested in, um, you know, then might as well provide provide what you've got. I know, and then just the fact that there was there's always been tomb raiders uh, for thousands yeah. of years, just going, okay, let's grab everything and even the body can be ground up and used yeah. uh it's yeah it's it's hard to think like when there's certain pharaohs and um people they can't find to this day like someone like nefertiti or whatever with the, the people that they're still looking for like to think like well they could have been ground up and used in paint already <laughs> you know, yeah like, i mean like i think so some sad. of those tombs were built in were were broken into you know like half an hour after they were sealed oh 100 you know it 100 yeah. because th those people knew what the what they were buried with and, and the value of it i've always thought that as well that's why they put all those curses on the door mm -hmm. and you know wax seals and the wrap it around and around um yeah, I good feel, luck with that. Oh. I feel like that that the the concept of mummy dust has even been something I've seen uh, as a theme in horror movies or stories where someone has a bag of mummy dust and they blow it on something and it causes a curse or causes something to happen. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like that's always been something that's that's in there too that you can you can use mummy dust for all kinds of uh, nefarious purposes or positive ones uh, for your health or art. Uh, there was another yeah. thing. <laughs> there was another thing that happened too, which I did not know about this. So this was fascinating to read. Uh, it was the mummy wheat craze of 1848 in England. 
tell the listeners about this one because this is wild. Yeah, I had stumbled on a thing, I think even before um, I started researching the book, I'd heard, oh, yes, there's they've grown wheat from from grains found inside Egyptian tombs. And, and if you go to museums, like Metropolitan Museum of Art has a big, big Egyptian um, gallery, and you'll see little baskets of um, nuts and fruit and see, you know, dried up grapes, little raisins. That, I don't know if they were raisins when they went into the tomb, if they were grapes, and, but they, uh, you know, loaves of bread. And it seemed, seemed you know, if it's arid, it seemed plausible that, yeah, maybe you could take those dried wheat kernels and, and actually grow them. So I so I looked to see, you know, is that a fact? And it it was not. Um, it was probably just, um, you know, the, the probably the same people who are selling the the ground up mummy would sell, you know, little pot hay. These these kernels they came straight from from a tomb. So you could take this home to England, grow ancient Egyptian wheat. So it was it was a swindle. Yeah. Um, and some people in England ran with it. There was a company that, that dealt in, um, Egyptian peas, ancient Egyptian peas. Um, I love that. Cause no, it, was it was called just regular wheat. I, I love the Egyptian peas thing. Cause it was called Grimstones, Egyptian peas. And yes, I got, a, I got <laughs> such a kick out of that because here in Michigan, in the Detroit area, one of our biggest, most oldest, uh, um, respected, uh, paranormal teams is called Grimstone. So I had to chuckle at that. Like, oh really? There's a relation. Well, well, that's not their last name, but they just call it that. But oh. I just, I kind of chuckled it's at that. So, hey, Chris, if you're listening, um, <laughs> but anyway, I just, I imagine because I know during the Vict- during the start during the Victorian era, um, you, and during that 19th century, you had that kind of start of archaeology and anthropology, and people going out and trying to find things in the jungles and digging up Egypt and um, all, all that kind of stuff and this romanticized view of of these other ancient cultures and so i can only imagine these victorians like getting their uh grimstones egyptian peas and planting them and feeling that they truly were uh connecting with the ancient past it's just yeah because they really wanted they really wanted to connect especially like to the biblical past and egypt you know egypt you've got all that stuff you can see you know what they looked like because they they painted and carved all those pictures of themselves. We see their daily life, their hunting, uh, even cooking and baking. We see them doing that. So it seemed like, hey, if we can grow Egyptian wheat in the garden, then, you know, we'll have a real, we'd be eating the same bread that they would have eaten. And as as Europeans, we're kind of, when it comes to the ancient times, we're, we're kind of impoverished um, because of our climate. Like, I think we had cool stuff, but, you know, um, wooden, wooden structures don't survive. Right. That climate. I mean, we're still, we were still a backwater, but I think we were, Northern Europe was a lot more um, interesting and complex and had more beautiful culture than people give it credit for. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, compared to what you see, I can, I mean, when you grow up around things like anybody growing up living in Victorian England, uh, many of the old buildings that they already had then, you know, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral, things like that. You're just used to seeing that. But then when you look and you see these faraway pictures of these half buried temples with images and hieroglyphics on them that you don't even understand. I can only imagine that 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 blows their mind where they're they're cool stuff back home in Stonehenge. They're like, meh. Yeah, I mean, Stone, Stonehenge now is just stones, but can you imagine like what it was like? See, oh, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like. There would have been people there and dancing and music and there were probably flowers and they probably, I don't know, painted the stones and maybe had, you know, wooden, wooden bowers. And, you know, it was probably, it was probably like more like an Indian festival yeah. than, it, you know, but all, all that's left is the stones because that's just how that's nature. That's just how it is. One of the recipes you talk about a lot in the book that comes up, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I don't, Lebkuchen? Lebkuchen. 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 My German is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a recipe that you mention a lot in the book. What makes this an important food historically for people? And I made it just today. That was the Aww. first um, batch of anything that I made. Um 
So this, yeah, Lebkuchen is usually translated, almost always translated as gingerbread okay. into English. And um, it re literally means cake of life, possibly. That's one of the possible etymologies. Not everybody agrees. Um, and it's, uh, so it's like gingerbread, but it's a softer, it's not a crunchy thing. Um, it's a soft and chewy cake. Um, you know, individual, the, I make the, made the easy kind today where I just cut it into bars and, um, it goes back way back to the middle ages. Um, probably the first people to bake it in Germany were Jewish bakers and does they had, uh, an older gingerbread tradition because they would have come up through Rome, ancient Rome into, you know, moving up North. There was, because I think the first Jewish settlement in Cologne, which is the far northern outpost of the Roman Empire on the continent in uh, the 300s AD. So they came up with, with spices and a yeast bread baking tradition, which they did not have in, in Europe early on. Um, so they would have, before that, there would have been very like flat, dense cakes of uh, barley or rye and then with the Romans and uh, would come in the uh, using yeast using wheat flour and especially with the with the Jews coming up um, you know establishing trading posts with spices and so at some point it, it just took off especially um, honey was very important um, the Romans and the Greeks, they did know sugar. In, in fact, molasses is actually a Greek word. So they knew sugar, but it was used pretty sparingly. Um, but then up in Europe had a lot of honey. That was one of the major things that they had to trade, especially in um, Northeastern Europe, where in the early centuries AD was still very much pagan. And I think honey and good growing land was one of the big reasons that that the Christianized Germanic people started moving east and establishing first trading posts there, and then just kind of taking over the whole place uh, was so that they could they could get honey, and and that's where the most famous um, Lebkuchen one of, well one of the most famous kinds is um, um, Tona uh, Katrintien. There's a different name for it in Polish, which I'll slaughter if I try to say it. Um, <laughs> so the city of Torn in German is now Torun in Poland. Um, at the time, the Teutonic Knights, they, they kind of took it over along with the Saxon merchants in the, like, the 1100s. And they started baking... Um, a kind of Lebkuchen that has a lot of honey in it. And um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's like what you've got, the, the, the new stuff, quote unquote, new resources that they're finding in Northern Europe with the older stuff, older baking tradition that's coming from, from the Mediterranean came together to make a long story short, it's all very complicated and we're not <laughs> sure about any of it. And that kind of made Lebkuchen is, is really, I would call it the quintessential German Christmas cookie. If you can call it a cookie, it's more like a small cake. When it and that also has marzipan in it, which is the almond paste with the rosewater. Rosewater, again, I think Bulgaria was the center of rosewater production okay. in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, but... Uh, yeah, rose water was first distilled in the Middle East. Um, see, where was I going with this? And, and almonds were used to be grown in the Rhineland. There was a big um, almond in industry in the Rhineland. So that, that went into it too. And so, as I said, it branches out. There's okay. this one, one cake has all these different sources yeah because i saw i saw it came up you know a lot within the book and um with the it's interesting i love as of course uh being in 
American English speaker, I will always say marzipan. But the fact that it's it's marzipan is that am I saying it right? Marzipan is that uh, yeah, marzipan is is marzipan is German. I just grew. I can't say marzipan. It just goes against the grain. <laughs> I, I I I'm all for um, reviving the word march pain. March pain. I can say that better. That all kind. Nobody like you could write a whole dissertation on the etymology of of marzipan. It may refer to a box that it was sold in it may refer to a coin that was used to stamp an image on top um it might be a box that was used to weigh the almonds and the sugar to make it um but it's so old but it definitely it's probably f almost definitely from an arabic word okay the uh that was one of these foods that I, I had this older piano teacher when I was young and she'd give us a little tiny Christmas gift every year. And one year she hands me this little plastic uh, box with six different uh, fruit shaped, it looked uh -huh. like candy to me, uh, mm -hmm. brightly painted with like a, you know, it looked like it was spray painted on. Uh, and okay, so then that's not Nita Eka. Yeah, no. And so I, I remember my mom, I'm like, what is this, mom? What is this? What candy is this? And she's like, oh, it's marzipan. And I bit into it and I was like, Bleh. like it to me, I, I hated it. I mean, first off, I was a little kid. So like it had an extremely violent, sweet, yet mm -hmm. overwhelming almond um, taste to it. And I, the texture, I was like, no, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. Well, then many, many, many years later, um, I would I would try it again because I found this brand Okay, I'm holding it in front of me. They're little uh, marzipan potatoes. Uh huh. Need Gregor. Need Eka. Need Eka. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, and they, they claim to be one of like the oldest makers of of this in Germany. I think that's what I read on their website, or they're one of them. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, it's a game changer. Like it is so good. I could just sit and eat like packages of these things. They're awesome. That's well. Okay. So when I um, it is pretty expensive. You can get it more and more here in the U.S. Um, when I buy marzipan that's made by another company, I always feel a little bit disloyal because Nita Eka is from the city of Lübeck in Germany where my mom grew up. Okay. And I talk a little bit about the history because you can't really talk about marzipan in Germany without talking about Nita Eka. Um, and they, they are old and they have the that tower, the two, the tower with the two pointed yep. peaks yep I um, see it. yep that's the the old the city's old gate that was built in the 1100s okay um but it's not uh the nita eka company is actually only about from the 1800s okay and it didn't really take off until they started making sugar from sugar beets in germany and then it became more affordable to make it so it became cheaper and they started making it all year round. And you can, um, if you go to the store there, you can buy marzipan in almost every shape imaginable. Um, we've bought marzipan. I still have a marzipan squirrel that I just love him so much. I've never eaten. Oh, oh, oh uh, we come home with marzipan seals, all the different fruit. And what's special about Nita Eka marzipan, it is not overly sweet. No, no, it's just right. It's perfect. It's it's very subtly sweet and also the painting um, of it. Like when you said that other one was like very brightly painted, yeah. like spray paint. On, yeah. That's yeah. definitely not Nita Eka because oh, they no. paint it very softly and, and they look, some of the fruits, they look real. So like the banana looks real, except it's a tiny banana. I think partly because in Germany, you can't just, you can't just show up at the Nita Eka factory and say, yeah, I want to learn to make marzipan. It's like, well, you need to serve a 10-year apprenticeship first. Oh, wow. Yeah, with pretty much every job in Germany, you have to, okay, well, you serve your apprenticeship. You come up through the proper ranks. And, um, you know, a lot of them you have to choose at, like, age 16. Which career path are you going to take? Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an art. And, yeah, that's that's my favorite marzipan. That is close to my heart. And uh, they will not – So so they do acknowledge it's sugar – almonds and rose water but nobody knows exactly what the proportions are mm, sneaky sneaky yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fade secrets 
Well, um, to all those listeners out there, I'll have to link that brand up uh, so you can check it out because I know you can buy stuff on their website. But there's a yeah, there's a kind of a fancy market down the street from where I work, and uh, they keep some of like the little potatoes stocked and also some um, like bars with like like actually chocolate covered. Uh, uh, yeah, boxes. those are called the so there's the the big bar, the long bar is a Schwarzbrot, okay, a black bread like pumpernickel, but it just means it's covered in chocolate. And then the vice bolt is just the plain white. And then I love my favorite is the little loaves. You can get a box of little loaves, loaves and each they're wrapped in red, red foil paper. And each one has a subtly different flavor. Like there's nougat, um, pineapple. And usually they're only labeled in German. So that's a little language lesson for you. I think there's a mocha one. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I just, I love it. So but it's, it is, there's some people just hate matzo. I know. I, one woman said to me, she like, tastes like bugs. Oh my god. So bugs. if you hate matzo, you just do, it's like cilantro, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I can be weird about ginger too. Like I love a good, uh, like a good crunchy gingerbread cookie. But like the mm-hmm. ones that are softer, like a ginger like loaf or anything like that, I'm sometimes like, Ugh. and if it's overly spiced, like maybe because my mom, like growing up, if I had a sour stomach, she'd be like, chew on this ginger. So I have like this association uh, sometimes with like yeah. overpowering ginger with feeling sick or something like that, so which, you know, that's just my brain and, and re- you know, firing off memories that's affecting that. But there, there's a mention when you, we talk about gingerbread, about gingerbread being magical and what area era what time era were people looking at gingerbread as sort of a like a like a spell almost where if you ate a gingerbread cookie in the shape of a just husband to you could attract mm-hmm. the real thing when when were people practicing that this? was that started i think maybe like in the 1200s and went on into the victorian age um maybe peaking like the 1600s they seem to be like you know, really super into magic in Queen Elizabeth's reign, Queen Elizabeth the First's reign. Um, that I, I think it was probably like a huckster idea at fairs. You know, because you know, here come the the maids uh, on their day off with a couple pennies to spend. It's like, oh, well, you buy this cookie. You you know, you think of the man that you want to marry and eat this gingerbread man. Mm-hmm. Um, your wish will come true. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, a, a wife who can't get pregnant, well, eat this gingerbread hair and <laughs> then you'll get pregnant. I'm So um, I think it was a way to make a buck. <laughs> I, I want to start doing that now. Like our next uh, Christmas time bake fair at work, I'm going to be like, these are ginger gingerbread spouses and these are the powers they have. <laughs> If like a gingerbread want, partner. Yeah, yeah, your your gingerbread partner, and uh, I'll make all these different shapes because you mentioned in the book too, like creating cookies out of different shapes, like gingerbread turkeys and and different things, not just like a gingerbread man. Um, and that you know, it's like okay, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna bring that tradition, like even if it was uh, from swindling, I'm like, I like this, this is fun, I like it that it has a fun purpose. <laughs> and there's one very mysterious um, gingerbread shape is the that kind of Lebkuchen I mentioned the the Torne Katrintien. So a Katrintien is means a little Catherine. And they were originally baked on St. Catherine's Day at the end of November. And they look like it's a lobed, sort of like a lobed rectangle. And you can buy uh if you search for Katrintien Ausstechform um um online you can buy a cookie cutter so you can make them in the traditional shape um i theorized that i think saint catherine of alexandria whose mm, i whose actual existence is cast into into doubt um but she i think was when she died a cloud bore her to the foot of mount sinai and there is a saint catherine's monastery on mount sinai so i'm wondering was it the, is it supposed to represent the cloud hmm. that she her her corpse was carried on? I don't know, but it's yeah, because that's a very it's, it's a very mysterious shape. But that is the none of the other Lebkuchen have a traditional shape other than round and like there's um you can get jelly filled stars and hearts, but the the Katrintian, it's yeah that that distinctive shape. 
Interesting. What out of all the recipes that you wrote about in the book, did did any of them kind of surprise you in their origins or just anything that you uncovered with the research that surprised you a bit? Yeah, like all of them. Because um, <laughs> uh, the Lebkuchen is, you know, it's a cake, but it's a chewy cake and it's got a lot of nuts and honey in it. So that led me to the um, panforte, which is a traditional Italian Christmas dessert, especially from Siena. Um, and that's probably the oldest Christmas recipe in the book, the panforte. And it means strong bread. And that brings us, that sort of is crossing the line from cake into candy because it's... Um, nuts and sugar and honey and uh, that's very very chewy and very sticky um they made it a lot better when they started adding chocolate when chocolate started coming from the new world um now it almost always has chocolate in it so that was and and there was uh that uh so it's nougat which nougat in german usually means a hazelnut like praline but the the Latin word nucatum that nougat comes from that was a mix of nuts and honey, and some traced it to the I can't remember now the name the the I should know the name of the tribe because it was the Samnites yes the Samnites because they were the a, a Samnite was the mascot of my the middle school that I went to oh, okay it wasn't high school. I think Chatham High School, Chatham Township High School, which no longer exists as such. The Samnite, I think it was the gladiator for the high school, the Samnite for the middle school. And at the time, I had no clue what a Samnite was. Yeah. Researching this, I found out what a Samnite was. And the, uh, so the population of Pompeii, they were largely Samnite. Okay. And they were, they were not, they were part of the Roman Empire, but they were not considered Romans themselves. And they had a reputation for, staying pagan for a long time after the rest of the Romans converted to Christianity. And they were credited with um, inventing this nucatum, this blend of, of, you know, cooking, roasting nuts, cooking nuts with honey to make this sticky confection. And they even had, uh, uh, there was one of their cities was known as the city of witches because they still gathered to dance around the sacred chestnut tree. So, that was that was fun and surprising because whenever I you know whenever I found like ran into Egyptians and witches it was always fun and it happened a lot through the book in places that I wasn't expecting like I wasn't expecting Egyptians to pop up in Switzerland but yeah one did I love that I love it I love all this unexpected stuff um, I assume you baked every single recipe in the book and, oh my god yeah and, 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 yeah. and like yeah <laughs> and, and, and I asked myself what am I Doing. Right. Uh, would there Except for the homes the homestyle Lebkuchen? There were okay. There were a couple where I just asked my mom. Oh, that's nice. That's easy. That's yeah. cool. So that cool. was handy. Mm -hmm. it, now, is there one though that you wouldn't make again after you experimented with it for the book? Yes. Ah, what yes. one? Pandoro. Oh, the, what the what Venetian one was that? Pan oh, it's a so it's like it's a Christmas cake, but it's with yeast. Oh. And a lot of butter and a lot of cream. And I think I might even say in the recipe at one point, don't cry. <laughs> when you have to mix, it's like a lot of, so the, the, the European bakers, the serious European bakers, they don't use bowls. Like when my mom makes her stone, she doesn't use a bowl. She does it on the table. And I think a lot of the Italian ones too. And it's like you, so you've got the, the mound of flour on the table and you're supposed to get all this cream into it. And it's like, it's rolling away. Oh God, no. Yeah. And it goes through all these steps where you, you mix the dough and then you chill it and then you add some more butter. And what came out is nice. I mean, maybe I didn't, I did it twice. Um, it was nice. <laughs> but it didn't seem to me like it was worth the work. Of course, most Italians will go out and buy a Pandoro. They won't have to make it themselves. Like the Panettone, you go out and buy that. 
Yeah, I will say oh. to anybody that has a Trader Joe's nearby, a lot of the lot of the recipes you mention in the book, um, I do see them put them out at Christmas time, like the the pan forte. Um, oh, really? Oh, oh yeah, they they have like that. I remember I got it once, and I was like, oh, like that was probably one of my. I was like, no, I don't like dried fruit and stuff. So I was like, but like, if you want to try any of these things and you are not an avid baker or don't even like to attempt to bake, uh, and I'm not working for Trader Joe's, I'm just saying like, they, they have them there right now. Like, <laughs> just go. And you can, a lot of the things that we we're talking about tonight, you'll recognize when you're walking down that freezer section where they have all their little uh, baked goods and stuff that they have for the Christmas time, uh, time of the year. But I keep hoping I'll, I'll hear from Trader Joe's because in my first book, uh -huh. I made a gingerbread house. And um, and I put Trader Joe's, I think they're even in the picture, Trader Joe's Scotty Dogs, licorice Scotty Dogs, um, you know, stuck them outside the house in the, the frosting snow. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard from, oh, there no. they are. Looking through the book now. <laughs> are they? Well, Trader yeah, Joe's. If you look on uh, page 189 in the their witches in the air chapter of the old magic of christmas those are trader jo trader joe's licorice scotty dogs what page was it because i got the book. front lawn of the witch's house the gingerbread witch's house what page was it linda yeah. uh, oh i just clicked 169 oh, wait no okay. one wait 189 189 okay i gotta i gotta peek i gotta peek because i got the book right yeah. in front of me uh oh, oh but yeah. i just want to say cute. um if you buy, you don't have to feel bad if you buy your Christmas cookies as long as you, you know, buy good stuff, because that is totally within the tradition of Christmas baking is going and buying it because um, in the Middle Ages, people, normal people didn't bake. Uh, you would get it from the bakery because most people in the, in the city, and this is a very urban book, this is a lot about city life, people did not have their own stoves and ovens because A, the expense... Um, for like one family to burn wood just to cook dinner for themselves was ridiculous and also fire hazard. Um, so you would either buy prepared food or, and they, my mother said her, her mother did this even, um, you know, during and after World War II, uh, <clears throat> she would put together the dough for a cake and then she would take it down to the bakery and there'd be a line of women with raw cakes waiting for them, you know, to go into the oven. Huh, wow. And that's how it was always in the Middle Ages. If you want to cook something special, you, you you put it together in your rooms and then you take it down to the bake shop to be baked. Yeah, and then also you would buy, like Lebkuchen, you wouldn't make that if you lived in a city. You would go and buy that. Okay. Yeah, nobody would. You you can. Um, so there's a recipe for a marzipan in the book and people do make their own marzipan, but it's totally acceptable to go out and buy it. Nice. So there you go, and listeners. You don't have to feel bad about going out no to Trader Joe's <laughs> and buying all the things we're talking about tonight. They're going to be just as good, um, mm -hmm. especially the stuff at Trader Joe's. Typically, um, you know, I find their stuff to be pretty awesome. Uh, Linda, I really want to thank you for taking time to come on the show and talk about all of this amazing history. Uh, I know you have a. I want to leave people with a really great quote I pulled from your book, uh, and it's "We eat to live, but at Christmas time, we also eat to remember the dead." And I think that is also a important part because while you might not be religious, uh, uh, you might Christmas night not even you might not even care. It somehow still affects everyone, kind of to a certain degree. I mean, either you're subjected to Mariah Carey on the radio when you go into a store, or you just somehow Christmas is affecting you. But if it's not Christmas this time of year makes everyone kind of sometimes sit back and think about things such as people we've lost because we have so many traditions around things like food uh, during the Thanksgiving and Christmas time, you know, that we just sometimes think about those who we have lost. So it's kind of a nice time to just, if anything, uh, just uh, have a gingerbread, uh, have, have something from the book and uh, think about those we have lost. But uh, Linda, I really want to thank you. This has been super fun. Uh, where can people find all of your uh, books that you've written? Um, they're all on Amazon. Nice. Um, I'm not that much in bookstores. I think this one, um, a friend of mine who works for Bowker said that the secret history of Christmas baking is part of like some 
deal that Bauer is making to encourage independent bookstores to to buy through them. So I think you might this is the first of my books that you might actually be able to find in a lot of bookstores. Oh nice. Nice. Oh so, yeah, so that's fun. The others are you can um my Llewellyn books you can get directly from Llewellyn. Um I have two Instagram accounts. I have um uh just I'm just Linda Radish on Instagram then Linda Radish SF is my fiction Instagram account. I think as last count, I had 54 followers. So, oh, guys, everyone go click anybody like. Anybody who comes and finds <laughs> me there, I welcome them with open yes. arms. Yeah, social media is so hard. Like, we're, we, we're kind of bad at it too for this show. Like, we see stats, you know, that, okay, we do have more than one listener, but we're so bad at social media. We're just like, oh, whatever. But it's anyway. It's like a separate skill set. Oh, I, it is. No, 100% it is. So, again, I want to thank you. Um, everyone, go out and pick up a copy of Linda's book. We have, uh, we'll have everything linked properly on our website. Go check it out. And if you have a particular recipe that you make, or if you make one out of this book, tell us your success or no success story. We'd love to hear about it. So, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. Ghostly Talk. <laughs> 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 <laughs>